Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. Uh, and in this episode, we'll start our material on Heinlein's work from 1953. And I saw, I'm sorry for a little bit of delay in uploads. I was kind of finishing up the end of the semester, so everything was kind of slowed down for me. But now I should be able to move on through the next few years of Heinlein's uh, writing without too much trouble. Um, specifically, we're going to look at, we're going to have four episodes in, uh, in our look at 1953. Um, it'll be two episodes on Starman Jones, uh, then Project Nightmare, and then Skylift. And that, I believe is it. Yeah, I think that's it. And then we'll, we'll move on to the next uh, book, which will be another juvenile Star Beast, 1954. Um, so anyways, let's go into Starman Jones, because this is an interesting one. Um, when I kind of just glanced at this, I never read this before. I didn't know anything about it. I just kind of had the back cover, the uh, top part of Wikipedia kind of introduction to this book. And it said um, about a farm boy who wants to go to the stars, which is kind of an interesting concept, because uh, that kind of sets our character Max Jones, apart from some of the other characters, something I've been complaining about uh, for a while is how these young male characters kind of all morph together and it's hard to tell them apart really and they're kind of forgettable um, and maybe that's fine because these were published once a year and so he just was kind of resurrecting themes. Um, but at the same time, reading them back to back, I was feeling a little kind of bored with some of the Bale characters, and I thought like some of the other characters in these novels were actually more intriguing and more interesting. And now he does do something different with this character, but he doesn't. He still has that one foot in wanting this character to be super, super competent. In fact, he he finds a way to make him even more and more competent, essentially by giving him a photographic memory, um, which allows him to kind of leapfrog from being a. a a bit of a country bumpkin to being a, a, a spaceman, a star man, as the title says. That's, I guess that's fine. I, it's not quite the story I wanted, I suppose. I, I would have liked much more of a, you know, a story of, of someone from a poor farming background, you know, kind of getting to space through kind of coincidences or maybe they maybe they dream of it but they don't have the means to get there and, and this character sort of always wants to go into space because he had a family connection his uncle was a astrogator which is like just a, essentially a navigator in space an astronaut um, and there's got some interesting aspects of the world building around this that I want to get into a little bit later but it's uh I don't know. There's something not quite as as appealing. I think too much has been set up in advance that make him very much like a typical Heinlein young young man hero that we're used to. You know that he has these ambitions to towards doing something unique, doing something different, but it involves space or involves space travel. 
you know, whether it's, you know, this joining the space patrol or joining the, the, you know, the space patrol or going to the moon or going to Ganymede as a settler. Um, beyond planets, in some ways, you have the least of this problem because they're, the character is kind of motivated by necessity, just wants to return to his family. Um, this story, we have a character who is who is kind of divorced from his family very earlier in the book. So he doesn't really have that. He's kind of liberated from the farm. So the farm part of the storyline is what's missing, I think. I would like more about that transition from being a farmer to being a spaceman. He basically goes from being a farmer to being a hobo to being a, a crewman on the ship. And, and that gets us about halfway through the book, right? The first half, half of the book really involves that, those kind of three legs of the story. And the farming part is just a little bit of it. So... Um, you know, a little bit more of that culture and that background and, and how that might have... We, we learned some of his background as we were some, but I, I just wish there's a little bit more of this transition from, you know, being, being a farmer to being a spaceman without having to just say, well, he's got a photographic memory, so he can kind of have this really fast education. Right, because somehow Heinlein knows that this guy is not going to be the kind of person who normally would go to space. So how does he get around this? Well, he gives him an uncle who has uh, a background as an astrogator, I think it's called. And then he had a bunch of books, and he's got a photographic memory. So he can like memorize all these logarithmic tables and, and stuff. And immediately like do advanced math and computations and understands all the science immediately without any effort. He, he's essentially a, a, a Mary Sue, or the male version of a Mary Sue. Um, but in a way, all of Heinlein's characters kind of are, you know, the competent ones. So again, he just becomes sort of another competent young man. It's just his competence comes from this photographic memory rather than from somewhere else. And that makes him a little less relatable as a character because how many of us have that ability? And in some ways, his other young male characters are a little bit more relatable. The story, though, and the world building in this one is something I really want to praise. I, I think this uh, adds a lot to kind of the Heinlein universe of ideas and concepts. Um, first of all, we have this apparently very radically like differentiated development on Earth, where we have like farmers like the Jones family who are incredibly, seems poor. They're, they're basically some, like subsistence farmers. I think it's one line that they, he grows the food and has a little money on top of that. And, and his father has died, and he's living with, I think it's his stepmom at, at the time, and his stepmom, he's ca- taking care of the family, supporting it, running the farm, doing the cooking. He's, he's a better cook, and all that. And that's all, like, like this is farming life. And that's how we're introduced to the character. But it seems to be pretty much a subsistence agricultural life. It doesn't seem to be like high-tech farming. It's not like what we see with Ganymede even. Um, it's almost 19th century in the feel we get get of, of what that life is like on the farm. In the sense, it's not really even, even market agriculture. It's like, it's like subsistence agriculture, as I said. So, but then you have like faster than light travel. So we essentially, for the first time in any of Heinlein's books since, I think, Methuselah's children, have FTL. There's not many examples of it. Heinlein tends to avoid it, and I think that makes his work good because he's really often talking about that first 
voyage into it's it's what that jump you get from our time to star trek he's interested in the time before where we're just venturing out a little bit by little but you don't have faster than light that'll just jump you to another planet where you can see animals so or aliens you have to and interact with other civilizations you have to deal with the solar system and yeah he does put other civilizations in our solar system and give humans interactions with them and things and but colonization of space is a slow process of of Venus and Mars and the moon, Ganymede, step by step. Uh, here we have FTL. So they're jumping out to other stars already. And I, like we saw that with Methuselah's children. Um, and we actually saw the development of FTL in that story. But I think that's the only other example I know of from that I can remember. Maybe in a short story there's some, but it's not much. So that sets this book aside. Um, but it even hi highlights this differentiated development we seem to have between Jones's family and upbringing and the rest of like Earth civilization. And, you know, if that's the case, that's something to really interrogate, although Heinlein doesn't really get into that much, although it does seem there's a lot of like vagrants and there's like kind of an underclass that's hinted at. So those are some of the themes I identified in this in the first half of this book. So anyways, uh, he's in like Arkansas or Missouri, someplace like that. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's Cardinals country, St. Louis Cardinals country. So uh, I immediately have to, to perhaps dislike this character, but I, I come to be fine with him. He's not my favorite character in the book, though. Um, in the very first page of the book, basically, he gets news that his mom is remarrying and there is a new stepdad. Um, what's his name? What's the... Anyways, I already forgot that guy's name. It doesn't matter. Unless he comes back later in the novel, which I don't think he will. He, he comes in and marries uh, his, his stepmom and says, I am, I've sold the farm. And we don't want you around anymore. <laughs> Basically kicks him out um, after selling the farm because like, we're going to go be city folk. Now, apparently he got a lot of money for it because this whole part of Earth is being like redeveloped or gentrified or in some way where... It's just maybe some government project, I think it was. So there was news. This is really like the Gilded Age, if you've read that book by um, uh, Mark Twain, where there's like land speculation and there's corruption about knowing where, where the government's going to build their base. So speculators were buying up the land and paying a lot for it because they know they can like force the government to give them like higher than market rates for it. And this man who comes in and marries Max's stepmom gets apparently five times like market rate so anyways the farm's out of his life early on in the story and he decides to just run away and go his own way and he doesn't really have a clear ambition I, we know or we learn later on i think that he kind of wants to go into space because he has his uncle's astrogation books that's like uh, a key plot point is he's got these all these books with all these charts and details, and he's memorized them because he only has to read something once. Why does he have to bring the books then? Uh, and that actually is a point that's brought up later on in the story is like, well, he does sell them back to the guild that runs the astrogations because it's like trade secrets that he's not supposed to give away. But he actually had it all memorized anyway, so it doesn't quite matter. But he brings them with him, and he, he just kind of is setting out on his, on his bike. Um, and... He ends up running into uh, like a hobo, essentially, um, named 
named Anderson, but he, he seems to have different names and he, he went by different names throughout his, his life. And he's a bit of a shifty character in a way. And like sometimes he'll tell stories about like how dangerous space is or how fates can affect people. Um, at one point he talks about like, you know, a deserter who, um, you know, kind of hit out, but eventually got caught and, and, and all that. And it's the implication being that he was a deserter and he, these stories are really about him and there's multiple stories. Um, but his first meeting with him doesn't go well because he basically gets robbed by the, by this hobo and he has to go on and, and he goes on and he eventually runs into some like truckers, some teamsters who, uh, you know, one teamster needed him, needed a second driver. But even though Max can't drive, he could like be there as the official second driver and get they could get the the load to space Earthport where he needs to go and where Max wants to end up because he's interested in space. So he decides to go along with this job, which basically involves just sleeping in the truck and then helping him unload it at Earthport and helping him get through these regulations. But uh Let's stop there because the Teamsters are a are a major force here. And more than that, we have the guilds. So this is now it seems that's in the case for farmers. There isn't like a farmers association, although we can imagine there's some kind of grange activity. Um, this is all kind of very mid-20th century, kind of looking at what the future might be. And I, I think it's not a bad vision to have. I think you know, if we're going to learn anything from the Middle Ages, I think the guilds is something maybe we can learn from where you had worker-controlled businesses. Yet, yes, they're very hierarchical. Uh, yes, they sometimes passed membership through families. Yes, sometimes they they oppress journeymen and, and apprentices. Lots of bad stuff. Um, not exactly democratic, but at least it was a model of worker-owned management or worker-controlled management and, and, and ownership from the Middle Ages that, you know, maybe we can learn from, right? I think that's the case. Just like Greek democracy would be something we can, like, learn from but not want to replicate because it was horrible. It wasn't actually that democratic, but there might have been principles there and ideas that we could think of. Like, I think I still think the polis idea where you have where people's political loyalties would be tied to a, a city and not to, like, a nation, like I, I still think that's a kind of fascinating idea, and that's something we could learn from the Greeks. But obviously, we wouldn't want to replicate Greek democracy in full with its slavery and you know foreigners not having any say and women not having any say. Obviously, that's not a good model. In that sense, I think the guilds here show, you know, maybe there's and obviously this isn't new. We, we there's plenty of science fiction that talk about guilds and guilds controlling it. And I think it's an interesting idea too, is because as technology makes work much more require more education. Right now we haven't seen that yet in our world. In fact, union membership is still very low, even though higher education rates are up. But you know, if you look at where unions were strongest historically, they tended to emerge first in skilled workers and not so much in unskilled workers because unskilled workers could be more easily replaced. Skilled workers, not so much, so they had more clout. clout. And therefore, to organize unskilled workers, you needed industrial unions, which are less like guilds. But we can imagine if you have more and more of the workforce highly educated and therefore uh, more ne necessary and this is running contrary to the narrative that we sometimes get of automation taking away jobs. It's like 
yeah, like maybe we're just going to have more high tech jobs or jobs that require more education or jobs that require more sophistication uh, or more intellectual work. Now, in theory, the theory I'm kind of positing here is that those people would be more likely to be able to form strong guilds because they could withhold their their labor and that could be devastating for the economy, right? Like just a few industries going on strike, even a few in the right factory, like one guild going on strike could shut down the industry, right? And that seems to be the case in the novel we have here in Starman's Jones, where like on a ship, you have like five different guilds and each guild without that guild functioning, the whole ship can't work. So you don't need a general strike. You just need a strike among one or two of them. So you're going to get a lot of political power and a lot of economic power in the guilds themselves to the point that they're essentially autonomous. They, they have their own rules. They have their own hiring mechanisms. If you want to get into the guild, you don't apply for the company, you apply to the guild. And it seems the guild is contracted to the ship or to the employer in whatever industry. And that's, it's not just the Teamsters, it's, it's a lot of other industries seem to be organized by guilds. It seems to be the whole economy here. And so that's what's keeping Max Jones kind of out of anything once he becomes a hobo. But then I wonder if this is also creating that very, very divided development we see, right? Where if you're not in a guild, you're kind of marginalized in some way. So you could be a farmer, maybe you could be like uh, Anderson and just be a hobo. And Anderson used to be in guilds, but got kicked out. He was in the Marines for a while and got, you know, he was a deserter from that. So he's, so it's like you're either in or out. You're either in the guilds or you're outside of them. And that seems to be a division between that. And so Max's job is to somehow try to get into the guilds. And Anderson gives him advice on this. So once he gets to Earthport, he runs into this Anderson guy again. And um, and the guilds track him down and see his astrogation books and force him to sell them. They don't just seize them. They force him to sell it because he said, my uncle had it. And his uncle was good standing in the union or in the guild. So they buy the books from him, kind of to protect the trade secret. But that doesn't really matter because this is about the time of the story that Max reveals. He has the photographic memory. And Anderson's like, well, with that ability, we can maybe do something. So um, first of all, you might have the abilities to move up in like even the Astrogation Guild. And you know that's where this is going, right? The book's literally called Starman Jones. We have the family connection now. Jones here doesn't have a father. He has an uncle that he wants to emulate and follow. So, you know, there is still a father figure. Although, to be fair, like, Heinlein doesn't really do that. I mean, he very rare. I think in none of these juveniles do we see the, the, the young man following in his father's footsteps directly, right? They're always stepping out in some way. Now, he doesn't really have a father. He's got a bullshit stepfather. But he's got a uncle right? That's maybe providing some inspiration. Still, it seems we're going to him becoming um, uh, an astrogator at some point. What that's going to look like or where it's going to go, who knows? Um, but he, anyways, Anderson is trying to work out a plan with him. And the plan basically involves bribing the right people to get on a ship. So he's like, if you want to go to another planet, you don't have to join the Astrogation Guild or become an apprentice in this guild because you have to pay high fees. You're not going to be able to afford it, you're not, especially not for both of us. But if you're just a crewman, if you just get in one of these other lower level guilds that don't require 
quite as much to get into, not as desirable of a job, that's not going to matter because once you get to another planet, you can jump ship and maybe they'll find you, maybe they won't, right? And yeah, like, or they end up having actually have false IDs too. So the whole thing is like a little sussy, their whole strategy here. But the whole idea is, is once you get on a ship, the worst they can do is kind of kick you off somewhere else and then they can kind of just repeat it. It's very much this kind of vagrant idea where you just kind of go, maybe at worst we go town to town. Best case scenario, we can find a place we can settle for a while or even move up uh, at some point. But until that, we're just going to kind of bounce around. And that's what they get. And so um, now all this happens after he he goes to the guild and asks the guild representatives for basically inheriting his his uncle's membership because the guilds are fairly hereditary at this point so most people get it from their fathers he doesn't have a father but he can't get it from his uncle and they take his books as i said or basically they, they um sell him his books so he he's kind of kicked out of the guild and doesn't have much hope of moving ahead so he goes to he runs into Sam again, Sam Anderson. And Sam Anderson basically says, well, no, we're going we're gonna to join in. We're going to go in the Stewart Guild, which is like the Losers Guild in many ways. But because of his um, photographic memory, because of uh, and through their means of getting like fake IDs and stuff, they're able to get into the Stewart's Guild, which is an easier path for them. But the whole idea, again, is just to get on the ship. And... And they join in. It ends up that his job is to take care of the animals on the ship, which are just the pets of the passengers. Now, it would be kind of cool if there was actually like transporting animals to other planets and having a bit of a Colombian exchange sort of thing going on. It's not quite what we get, although I'm sure, you know, there's ecological consequences for even these animals. But uh, there are these um, just the pets of the passengers. And there's a whole discussion here of like, how the crew people and especially the stewards aren't supposed to interact at all with the passengers who are usually really high class and, uh, you know, they look down on the crew. There's not supposed to be most fraternizing and there's very much a hierarchy between the guilds and the hierarchy within the guilds, officers and low level members. It's all pretty well laid out. And I think that makes this book rather, rather enjoyable. But anyways, he's taking care of the animals. That's his job. And that's when he runs into Ellie Coburn. Ellie Coburn is the owner of one of these pets, and uh, she's a young lady about his age, about Max's age, and she's not described as particularly pretty, but Max and Ellie nevertheless run, you know, make end up as friends. Now, I only mention that she's described as not pretty because Heinlein makes a big point of it, and Heinlein usually has his female characters be fairly good-looking. Uh, knockouts in many cases um but especially in his adult fiction not here uh which i think is good because we can see a relationship develop between them these two we we kind of you kind of see where it's going you see you're going to guess that these two are going to end up together but it's they're a little star-crossed because max is a lowly steward on a ship and low-level steward at that and Coburn's a passenger, which means she's like of the super elite. In fact, it turns out that she's the daughter of a diplomat from another planet. And 
and they become friends and what they interact through this spider puppy, which is kind of an intelligent um, alien pet that she has and that he's taken care of and it can talk and it can kind of um, parrot back statements and things. And they start playing chess and she would come down to like the lower decks to come down to the, to visit the, um, the spider puppy and play chess with Max. Now, Max is, uh, you know, well, Max has the chess set, but she is expert at this. She's like super well-educated, even though she's kind of been dumped out of schools and, and passed through and she's been bounced around herself. She's a bit of a drifter too, which I think provides a point of contact between these two characters. Um, but she's in some ways much smarter than he is. He's got this eidetic memory, but she's apparently got this very strong strategic mind because she can, she could beat him at chess, but she doesn't. Um, and we see her thinking strategically when Max it wants to, or she tells Max like, well, I can't, I'm not going to go down here anymore to see you. I can't, but we could just meet like in, in the normal crew or like the normal areas of the ship right like the lounge and max is like well we're not allowed to go there because he's memorized the rules he knows the rules by heart he thinks through the rules and he's, he can recite the rules and he's like i'm not allowed to do that and then she's like well sometimes crewmen are on, in interacting with passengers and then max says well those are officers they're not like people of my rank and she's like well there's always a way around this but she's thinking strategically he's thinking by the letter of the law and i think that kind of contrasts these two characters um, pretty well. And I think this almost gets us halfway through the book. Uh, there's maybe not quite, but there's a lot in the middle of the book, which is just them on the ship. So we're not, I'm not quite sure where the ship is going. I assume they're going to get to another planet and have some adventures, um, on, on Halcyon, which is an interesting name for a planet. That's where they're heading. And then, and then I assume at some point he's going to enter into the Astrogator's Guild. That's what I predict I have. And, and maybe he'll marry Ellie or end up with a relationship with Ellie. Um, I think that's where it's going. So anyways, my overall thought so far in this book is that it's doing something different. Each of these juveniles does do something different. I've complained sometimes of the repetitiveness, but I do admit they're all really distinctive. You don't forget the books. Like... 20 years from now, if someone mentions the Rolling Stones, I'm going to have like an, an impression of that book, even if I never read it again. Or Space Cadet. I may not remember the characters, or I may not remember the characters' particular features, um, but I'll remember like what's core to that story. And and it's it's striking how kind of memorable and distinctive these books are. They're not like some of the like mystery stories or like those continental op short stories from Dashiell Hammond, if you read those, where each... Each story is kind of different. It's got a different plot, but they all sort of merge together. This, These are all, they really stand on their own. Kind of like Philip K. Dick novels in that way. Um, and I think that's good. Even though I think the characterization is never very strong. Um, and once again, we have a novel where a secondary character, in this case it's Anderson, is the most interesting person we're given. Like actually, Coburn, Ellie Coburn, um, is more interesting than, than Max. Max just has a photographic memory. And he's a little, just to, like, he just sees things very kind of two-dimensionally. Even though he talks to her about, like, folding space and how FTL is possible, he understands that 
scientifically, but his whole approach to life is very kind of one-dimensional, uh, which is surprising. He does play that cubic chess, I think they call it, or what's the what's the name they give for it? Uh, it it's kind of like, it's three-dimensional chess, but I think they got one point called like cubic, cubic chess because it's three dimensions. Um, but or space chess, maybe it was space chess, meaning three dimensions rather than like two-dimensional. Um, but anyways, interesting stuff. The other thing I like about this book is the thought that went into the guilds and the world building in that aspect. And, and it, I think it does provide a, a vision for maybe how a more technologically sophisticated society may, may manage something like worker power. Um, maybe this is an ideal, obviously. There seems to be a lot of people excluded from it, and you have to kind of beg and scrape and claw to get in. And once you get in, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of luxurious, and you're kind of golden, as long as you don't get caught doing something wrong or deserting like, like uh, Anderson does. So anyways, uh, pretty good. I, I don't know. This is... This might turn out to be my favorite so far. Um, we'll, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, it's going to depend a lot on how everything's wrapped up. But so far, I'm really, really impressed with this one. Um, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to it, um, partially because I didn't know anything about it. But exciting stuff. Exciting to read a new Heinlein novel and to be pleasantly surprised and not be annoyed by him. Because he is so annoying sometimes. So anyways, that's it for now. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, I'll see you next time when I'll finish up my thoughts about Starman Jones. See you then. Bye. Thank you.